Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from National Security College. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I'd like to warmly welcome all of you to this um uh, this public seminar, which is one of a series that we run throughout the year, and uh, we're very grateful for the support um, that you give us and, and the way in which these seminars connect with a lot of interest across the policy community, uh, the private sector, uh, and the academic world, including um, teachers and students. So thank you very much for being here this evening. Um, I'm going to hand over very soon to uh, Professor Roger Bradbury, who is the uh, acting Director of our Academic uh, Outreach and Research at the National Security College. And I'm going to do that for many reasons, but one of them is that uh, Roger, uh, in addition to those roles, is also overseeing um, a major multi-year uh, research project that the NSC is working on in collaboration with international partners in the US and the UK on the ecology of cyberspace. And some time ago, um, uh, we commissioned some work uh, from a number of people whose names are on the front of this publication this evening uh, to reinforce that focus that we're giving to cybersecurity issues. And I'm delighted that this has come together in the form it has, focusing on decision-making and ethical considerations in relation to cyber attacks on warfare and cyber weapons, um, on freedom of cyber movement and the responsibilities of the state to its citizens, um, and on cyber terrorism. And all of these have been addressed uh, in one shape or form uh, in these papers by, by six scholars. And um, I think it's, uh, it's a great contribution they're making to this very important debate, and I compliment them all on the work that they've done here. We're very very pleased to be associated with it, and a number of them will be speaking this evening that, um, that Roger will introduce. Can I say I'm particularly pleased to have here this evening um, Associate Professor Mick Kelty, um, with whom I've worked in various shapes and forms over the years, and now in a different one, and I'm very delighted that um, uh, he's played an important part in this project, um, and I'm also grateful to all of the other scholars that have contributed. So Mick, a very warm welcome to you. Um, and to all your team. So again, thank you very much for coming. I'll now hand over to Roger, um, and we look forward to the discussion this evening. I did forget one important thing, which I, I should have mentioned at the start, and I, and, um, I apologise. Um, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate uh, the first Australians on whose traditional uh, lands we're meeting, and I'd like to pay our respects uh, to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. As Michael said, I run the cyber program at, at the National Security College, and it's uh, it's got several it's got several strings to its bow. Uh, the one we're talking about tonight is to do with turtles. Um, in this sense, uh, you know the old phrase about how when you're looking for explanations and and causes of things, one turtle rests on the back of another in one of those. Uh, 
funky cosmologies that people talk about. And some people say there are turtles all the way down, so you never actually get to a final explanation. But we've actually got some philosophers here and ethicists, and they actually are the final turtle in, 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 in many ways. <coughs> They're the bedrock on which explanation rests. Uh, I won't open this up for a broad philosophical discussion tonight on whether the bedrock really is a bedrock or is just another turtle. But uh, what it means is that when we're making hard policy decisions about cyber issues, about cyber security, we, we need to burrow down and get, and get our um, substantiation from some sort of moral and ethical base about how we should be behaving. And that's what these guys have done in their, in their terrific um, booklet, which I commend to you, <clears throat> and which we're now going to briefly give some, uh, give, an, give some overviews on. So firstly, I'd like to call on Mick Kelty, who will give us a general <coughs> overview, and then I'll ask for Adam and Shannon to uh, explain some more. So Mick, over to you. Thank you, Roger, and uh, thank you, Michael, for your kind introduction. <clears throat> it's a, a very timely occasion for us because the work that the scholars have put into this paper uh, has coincided, and the launch of the paper tonight has coincided with the latest research out of CSIS in Washington, <coughs> combined with McAfee, that estimates cyber security to be costing the global economy somewhere between $375 billion and $575 billion each year. <clears throat> that, that's a study that was released only two days ago. Uh, more worrying about that paper that was released by CSIS and, uh, and by McAfee is the fact that the data is so uh, weak that they, you can't actually um, be too reliant upon it. So th that's why you get such a diverse range of figures, 375 billion to 575 billion. I think uh, one, of the, one of the reasons why that's the case is that different governments, uh, the private sector and the public sector in different countries actually measure these things differently and are reticent, unreticent on, at times to report because it has an implication to them, whether it be to the share price, whether it be confidence in government policies, whatever the cause, uh, there's, a, there's a distinct lack of transparency which is picked up by, by the papers introduced by the scholars. <coughs> in fact, um, in, in the book Big Data that was uh, launched uh, almost two years ago, um, uh, it, it talks about Google being first aware of any major uh, pandemic in the world because of the fact that people search on Google and, and are searching for a response to a particular disease. That places in the hands of the private sector some extraordinarily onerous responsibilities. Such occasions as a, a pandemic or an epidemic um, is why we have the World Health Organisation. It's why the United Nations actually has uh, entities under its uh, mandate to deal with these issues. But increasingly, they're no longer within the purview of the public sector and they've shifted to the private sector without necessarily the same levels of governance. Of course, not all of this has been planned. It's actually happened at a rate that's been difficult to match. Um, take, for example, the introduction of Wi-Fi. Um, 
the introduction of Wi-Fi to public places like shopping centres, it seems like a good idea at the time and it seems to be able to give people access to the internet where they wouldn't otherwise have it. But it also has other uses. It's creating big data opportunities to enable retailers and, and other uh, examiners or, or researchers rather than survey customers to actually know where customers are at any given point in time, to actually know how long they're spending in a particular place and to indeed know what they're looking at and why they're looking at it and where it is on the shelf that they're looking. All of this data may, has a commercial use and it's almost an unintended consequence of going down the path of, for example, introducing Wi-Fi into public places. Um, when you stop and think about the actions I've just described and, and, and join with it uh, biometric um, um, filming of people, the geospatial analysis of where people are at a given point in time, it seems like we've had mission creep on, on security and surveillance and covert surveillance. The fact that when you walk into, for example, a shopping centre, the shopping centre with Wi-Fi knows exactly whether you're, a, you're a, an Apple Mac user or an Android user. I mean, is that something everybody knew they were giving away? Is it something they're consciously giving away? And what does it do to privacy policy? How relevant is privacy policy today when a lot of this is forsaken for the purpose of the convenience of communication or connection? And, it, and, and, and it's a, a, an emerging issue that's, that's now having even bigger implications. Another recent paper released in about the last two days is talking about whether or not search engines deliberately, deliberately manipulated can affect the outcome of an election, whether it be an election in, of a government or whether it be an election in a, in a private sector situation. But the ability to manipulate search outcomes has a very important consequence for people who are trying to get to the heart of or the truth of matters. And um, uh, it, it's exacerbated by the, the advent of BYOD. When many of us in this room started our employment uh, life, the best technology was available at work. Now the best technology is brought to work by people coming to work. And that's throwing up huge policy challenges. In the last a um, couple of years I've done some uh, examinations and inquiries of, of police and emergency services across two jurisdictions and uh, no one has really come to terms with the recording of film um, by individuals, uh, the recording of events by individuals because previously it had been corporately owned and when litigation occurred and a, an entity such as a police organisation or a or an emergency services organisation was asked to produce its holdings on a particular subject, normally, or previously, the organisation was aware of its holdings. Now that you've got bring your own device, it's, it's actually broken that down. Uh, the, the scholars, as Michael mentioned, uh, have put together some very thoughtful pieces about cyber security and, and the world as we know it today. Uh, Adam Henschke's paper describes the current environment of cyber security as involving a complex series of relations between old and new actors. Recognising the right of individuals and states to protect themselves from attack, Adam's paper seeks to establish a transparent decision-making process that allows others to judge whether or not the response in the circumstances has been justifiable. 
Nicholas's Evan, Evans, Nicholas isn't here tonight, but Nicholas, Nicholas Evans's paper reintroduces the, the notion of dual use uh, that we saw emerge out of the export-import sanctions during the Iraq war. There's good and bad uses. Uh, and Nicholas, Nicholas's paper talks about the dual use and it suggests that investment into costly prevention strategies may not be appropriate in the circumstances. And when it comes to cyberspace, rather than investment into prevention, it might be better to invest into preparation strategies. Uh, Shannon B. Ford's paper on cyber weapons also raises ethical and moral considerations to be made when discerning what is cyber war and what is not. Um, cyber crime and cyber espionage do not amount to cyber war and there needs to be an ability to understand and the difference, particularly when formulating the response. Uh, pursuing the need to properly define and understand the problem before setting out on, on a solution is addressed in Levi West's paper. For instance, the biggest return on investment for terrorists to date appears to be the using the internet to radicalise or to recruit. Um, we haven't yet seen the use of the internet for, for major data attacks. Uh, and so the primary difference at the moment is that terrorists are focusing on, on gaining support and gaining uh, ideological uh, involvement from people rather than data sets. But once they do what the commercial world is now doing with data sets, it could be a whole different world and that's raised in Levi's paper. Um, some of the things that are emerging out of the papers is, you know, particularly here in Australia where we've got such a divergence of policy response to cyber security <coughs> and whether or not... Uh, it raised the question when we were talking about this um, uh, in, in the last few weeks, whether or not because we can see an attack on our border, because we can see when boats are arriving, we've decided as a policy response to set up a, a border force we can't see the cyber attack, we can't see the manipulation of search engines, we can't see some of the things that we're now talking about in terms of impact on our economies. And yet we've got such a diverse range of departments and responses uh, from the, the, uh, the government level uh, that, that, that to, to the uninitiated seems terribly uncoordinated. Um, if you ask a business or if you asked a parent where should you go first if you have a problem, n nobody seems to know. And I, I have been associated with some very large companies in Australia in, in recent times looking at cyber, particularly on, on um, major share transactions in the billions of dollars uh, across the globe through, through accounts held in different locations. And the impact is, is, is enormous. But are they about to tell anybody if they have a problem publicly? I suspect not, because of the impact on their own share price. So there are a lot of ethical dilemmas that have been thrown up by the current cyber security situation and, and I commend the papers that we've got here tonight and the authors to you, thank them for their work and uh, I'll hand it over now to Adam to talk to you about his paper. Thank you. So thanks to everyone uh, for coming out tonight. Um, thanks obviously to Mick for his talk um, and thanks also to the NSC for their support. Um, and as a final thanks, I'd like to thank uh, the NSC's uh, Martin and Patrick, um, I think Patrick's up there, um, who were instrumental in finalising, I guess, the, the final output of the occasional paper.
So what I'm going to do uh, tonight is give a little bit of background to the current aspects of the project uh, that Shannon, um, Adam Gastonow, Levi and Nick Evans, myself, are working on, and we'll also give a little information as to how I see ethical analysis fitting in with larger questions about cybersecurity. In terms of project background, in mid-2012, uh, myself and Shannon, um, sitting down there, uh, ran a small workshop with the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University on ethics and emerging military technologies. During this workshop, issues of cyber war and cyber security more generally uh, came up quite frequently in the discussion. In late 2012, Shannon, myself, Adam Gastonow, who's sitting there, uh, Dr Nick Evans, who's at the University of Pennsylvania now, uh, received funding from the NSC to look into some of the ethical challenges of cybersecurity. We later co-opted Levi West, also sitting there, into the project. Um, with additional support from Charles Sturt University, we presented some preliminary research in June of last year at the annual Society for Applied Philosophy conference in Zurich, and Shannon and I spent a week talking with a range of different people at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. In early August, we then ran a two-day workshop at the NSE, um, which brought together a range of Australian experts, as well as three US experts, Professor George R. Lucas, Jr., not the George Lucas of Star Wars fame, uh, from the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, Professor Don Howard from the Riley Centre of Science and Values at University of Notre Dame, and Dr Pano Yenaka-Georgis from the Air Force Research Institute. Um, Professor Lucas then gave a public seminar, which some of you might have attended. In October last year, Shannon and I were invited by Professors Lucas and Howard to present our research at the annual International Society for Military Ethics Conference at Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Since then, along with Fritz Elhoff and BJ Strausser, and building directly out of the August workshop, I've been co-editing a book with Oxford University Press. It is currently titled Binary Bullets, The Ethics of Cyber Warfare, and is due for release next year. And I and Dr Evans have articles currently under review at academic journals on different aspects of ethics and cybersecurity. Shannon and myself recently returned from Geneva, Switzerland and Koblenz, Germany, where we had co-organised two workshops on ethical and legal issues to do with cyber warfare, and we attended a conference covering the challenges of teaching military ethics in the face of emerging technologies and evolving military practice. The two of us are now working with a group who secured a National Science Foundation grant in the US called Safeguarding Cyberspace with Ethical Rules for Cyber Warfare. This is a collaborative project which includes Associate Professor Fritz Elhoff at Western Michigan University, Professor Patrick Lynn at California Polytechnic University at San Luis Obispo, and Associate Professor Bradley J. Strausser at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. This is just to give an overview of how much, from an initial idea, well, this cyber stuff seems to be interesting, seems to just expand, 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 and as Mick pointed out, you know, the, the question and problems only seem to be getting larger. In terms of my ongoing research, I've re recently started a position at the NSC as a postdoctoral research fellow. My research here involves work on normative and conceptual aspects of cybersecurity. I'm currently looking into how we can understand things like cyber harms and cyber aggression, and I'm going to be exploring notions of trust in cyberspace, as well as how different cultural conce conceptions of war and cyber play into interstate conflict, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. So what I'll now do is give a very general discussion of how I see ethics and philosophy playing a role in public discussions around cybersecurity. My own piece in the occasional paper, as Mick mentioned, is intended to give a very general overview of how I see the tools and skills of ethics and philosophy playing a role in preparation for and response to cyber threats. To clarify, what I mean by ethics is an exposition of the key values that justify given behaviours, and what I mean by philosophy is a detailed outline of how these key values and given behaviours relate to each other. As many of you know, one can't, one can't simply act without reasons. 
when considering actions that have a special social significance, such as the actions of government, the military, policing, or more specifically, actions that occur in the context of security, we can't simply act and leave it at that. What we need to do is act well and to be able, when required, to give publicly justifiable reasons for such actions. Cybersecurity is obviously a socially significant realm in that people both expect their government to provide some level of security against malicious actors and demand that their rights are protected as much as possible. This can create a tension where one set of ethical values, such as the pursuit of national security, may have to be traded against another set of ethical values, such as privacy, the risk of virtual harms, or trust in institutions. What makes this an especially problematic area is that many of us are in a state of confusion about exactly what future cyber threats are and how we can actually plan for unforeseen threats. Furthermore, given the sensitive nature of security threats, many aspects of national security need to be kept confidential or secret. My hope is that ethics can add to the discussion by pointing out and understanding when value trade-offs are being made and hopefully when they can be avoided through good planning. Through good conceptual and analytic work, we hopefully develop reasons that have the necessary rigour to explain just why, in a given situation, a particular value trade-off was made and why it was justified. To give an example of how an ethical analysis can add to current debates, some work I've recently done analyses the morality of metadata. In this work, I asked what are the reasons that metadata would be considered morally important? Firstly, we ask, does metadata have an intrinsic value? Is it a form of information that is something important in and of itself? For instance, is it comparably intimate to information we typically consider private? Think now that while a small section of metadata is not problematic, combined different forms of metadata and a highly revealing set of information can emerge. If John calls Jane once, this might mean very little. Imagine now that John calls Jane and Jane then calls Jim and Jim commits a crime. If this was to happen every time Jim commits a crime, we might consider that John could be involved in Jim's criminal activities. Secondly, we need to ask if metadata is instrumentally valued. Can it be used in ways that impact on something morally important? For instance, could its misuse produce a decline in people's freedom? The use of metadata to track down political dissidents is one example where metadata, combined with other information, has been used for morally bad purposes by morally problematic governments. Given that metadata is so openly and freely used, there seems to have been an assumption that people do not consider it morally important. Two possible explanations for this position are that what's important is what's private, and metadata is not private, therefore not important. We know that metadata arises through shared relations between people, often through a third party. So by definition, it does not seem to be secret. And if it's not secret, it is no longer private, or so the, so the thinking goes. This claim is problematic, however. It rests on a certain conception of privacy as secrecy, which is just one way to think of privacy. For instance, another way that privacy has been conceived of is to think of it as control over intimate information. And so a second possible reason why people don't seem to care about metadata is, that because, uh, is because the content of metadata is itself innocuous and therefore it cannot be intimate, so it should not be considered private. But this claim is also problematic, like, pu like putting together a composite picture of a person from what is more like a random bunch of dots, we can produce something very revealing. The thing to keep in mind is that following processing of metadata, we produce useful new information and an intimate portrait of the target person can now emerge. So my general approach is to consider that ethical theories, coupled with good an analytic rigour, can help recognise value conflicts and, if needed, can offer an analysis of prescriptive responses to such value conflicts. Moving from the, I guess, the small personal level to the interstate level, consider now a dispute between states over cyber security. 
The parties in, this, in these disputes may have fundamentally different foundational values guiding their discussions. Ethical analysis should be able to not only identify these values and how they are in conflict, but should also be able to offer a set of suggestions as to what the practical implications of following each value set are. Furthermore, ethical analysis should present reasons as to just why some set of, some set of practical dimensions, such as a set of laws or policies, are preferable to another, given the party's foundational values and conflicts between them. Good ethical analysis, I suggest, should do more than offer theoretic analysis, but, guide in, but to guide action in ways that are both practical and useful. For instance, something that I've started working on here at the NSC is to research and develop the conceptual tools that would be needed for an international consensus on cybersecurity. One fundamental aspect to limiting the risk of cyber warfare, particularly the risk of military escalation, is to aim at some set of mutually agreed upon rules of engagement and norms of military behaviour in cyberspace. At the core of such rules and norms are a set of conceptual discussions about what counts as cyber weapons, cyber attacks, the credences in attribution to a given attacker, thresholds for military responses, etc. I consider these foundational discussions to be in the field of ethical analysis. So the final thought to keep in mind is that none of us here claim to have all the answers. What we are hoping to do with this ongoing research is to help in framing questions and to ensure that key ethical values are included in any of the public discussions arising from this involving evolving and complex set of realms. Thanks. thanks, Adam, and thanks for the kind introduction, Roger. If philosophers are the bedrock, then political scientists like myself are probably the dirt that sits on top of it. Um, so I'll, I'll try and get a little bit dirty with this discussion here of ethics and, and politics. Um, it is a privilege to be presenting uh, here at the NSC, and I'd like to thank, uh, thank them for funding this research project over the last year. I'd also like to thank the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics for its support to Dr Henschke and myself, and also the Australian Graduate School of Policing for continuing to support this research and the opportunity to apply this knowledge to programs aimed at professional development. And of course, my fellow authors, Dr Adam Henschke, Dr Nick Evans, Levi West, Adam Gastineau, and of course, Professor Mick Keelty. Now, the authors of this NSC occasional paper have provided an overview of the central themes of their investigations into cybersecurity, in particular the non-technical dynamics of this emergent and complex policy area. An effective response to emerging threats to cybersecurity requires a comprehensive understanding of the problem and its potential solutions. Uh, threats to national and international cybersecurity are a growing reality but many of the important theoretical, ethical and policy aspects of cybersecurity remain unexamined. A number of key questions arise between the diversity of threats to cybersecurity, the trade-offs required to manage cyber threats and lack of agreement about who is responsible for securing cyberspace. How do we best conceive of the harms incurred by threats to cybersecurity? How should we understand cyber threats in terms of uh, more conventional modes of violence? How do we understand the convergence of information technologies which may be compromised by cyber threats? How do we weigh these threats and develop a systematic way of dealing with them that encompasses a range of potentially qualified but not uniquely capable actors? My brief uh, presentation today concerns three general observations about ethical analysis in cybersecurity. First, I begin by exploring the way that uh, radical changes in technology are transforming the ethical issues or norms of conflict. 
then I touch on the important ethical issues relating to privacy, anonymity and confidentiality. And finally, I finish by making some observations about the role played by trust. But before I start, I'll make just one clarifying point about what I mean by ethical analysis. Uh, as Dr. Patrick Lynn from California Polytechnic, who is a, a czar when it comes to ethics and, and, uh, and uh, emerging technologies, uh, suggests in his recent article in the Atlantic uh, magazine, contrary to popular opinion, ethics is more than gut reactions or intuitions. It's about drawing out and applying broader principles that ought to guide our actions, such as maximising happiness, respecting autonomy, doing no harm, or treating others as you'd want to be treated. Now, my first general observation uh, today is that uh, radical changes in technology continue to transform uh, the norms of conflict. The emergence, evolution and global expansion of the internet are central to developing an understanding of cybersecurity, obviously. Although the ubiquity of computer technology itself has been important, it is the emergence of the complex global system of interconnected networks linking hundreds of millions of computers around the world that makes cybersecurity an omnipresent domain that reaches deeply into multiple facets of existence and as such presents a multitude of gaps for potential security threats to manifest. Despite it being an emergent field with arguably fundamentally different characteristics and dynamics than previous security issues facing nation states, the frameworks and perspectives that are informing the discourse, the policy and the strategies are a continuation of pre-existing approaches. Uh, this means that in most, if not all instances, the approach being taken is state-centric. This is justified by the continuing presence of the nation state as the primary actor in inter international affairs. With the capabilities to marshal substantial resources and project significant power. It is generally recognised that cyber capabilities offer a number of distinct options to actors other than the state, yet this has limited impact on the responses that are being developed by states and by the international system. Clearly, a significant challenge for the conventional understanding of conflict is the recent development of cyber weapons and their emerging use. Uh, the use of military capabilities to deal with cyber threats creates a number of headaches for conventional ethical approaches to conflict. First of all, at least when it comes to the use of military cyber capabilities, uh, the warfighting distinction, which is uh, something I discuss in my section of the occasional paper, still leaves us with insufficient ethical guidance for the use of cyber weapons in war. For example, the warfighting approach to judging the use of military cyber capabilities doesn't help us reduce unnecessary collateral harm. It is the military ethicist's role to ensure that the correct moral criteria are understood by users of cyber weapons and to insist that users are duly diligent in ascertaining technical capabilities and relevant aspects of situations in which they are used. A second problem with the warfighting distinction is its failure to acknowledge the necessary non-war role played by military cyber capabilities. In his article on cyber war and cyber warfare, Tom Mankin highlights the unique attributes of what he describes as the cyber instrument of warfare and what I'm referring to as, the, as military cyber capabilities. Mankin argued that the effects of cyber capabilities, unlike conventional military capabilities, can be both instant and global. 
Furthermore, cyber, cyber capabilities are not only available to state actors. Many non-state actors and also pseudo-state actors are playing an important role in cyber conflict. As a relatively new military instrument, cyber weapons are surrounded by a great deal of uncertainty. Importantly, the, no the novelty of cyber conflict makes it unclear what actions may constitute an act of war and which actions may lead to escalation. The point being that military cyber capabilities have a necessary peacetime or non-war role, uh, and this role has been uh, often neglected in discussions relating to military ethics. Now, my second general observation is on the topical and crucially important aspect of privacy, anonymity, and the concern with personal data, which uh, Adam raised. Recently leaked doc uh, documents have created a broad debate about what governments should legitimately be able to access in terms of personal data and what reasonable expectations private citizens should have in regards to their own personal data. But our understanding of privacy is being challenged by radical change in information and communications technology. The emergence in particular of social media has altered for many what constitutes private and what <coughs> constitutes public. There is a growing recognition of the, of the risks associated with this increased openness in relation to personal information with particular significance for future employment prospects as one example of a consequence. The need for clearer art articulation of the privacy impacts of social media and of cyber more broadly is essential for the effective management of public policy in relation to cyber capabilities. It is doubly important for individuals who work in or seek to work in the law enforcement and national security sectors. Maintaining an appropriate degree of discretion becomes increasingly difficult particularly when the absence of a social media profile can be equated to as much of a signature as anything else. The emergence and increasing ubiquity of cyber technologies means that there is a key role to be played, in particular in the national security space, for clear and articulate voices on behalf of privacy. As pointed out by my colleague, Dr. Henschke, cyber not only throws up a whole set of novel challenges to civil society, it also highlights where there are existing tensions and dilemmas especially when it intersects with the exceptional powers and authorities that law enforcement and national security agencies are provided. It is important that these agencies, as part of their responsibility to maintain legitimacy in the eyes of the people they serve, are able to articulate and justify exemptions from these privacy considerations. Uh, now, my final general observation uh, tonight relates to the issue of trust. Peter Warren Singer, uh, Peter Warren Singer recently stated, I very much fear that the internet, uh, the internet, which has been the most powerful force for political, economic and social change in my life, and maybe even all of history, will not be what my kids inherit. The, the internet is built on a system of trust and it is threatened like never before. Trust is essential for cyberspace to function. Key government, military and economic activities are now highly dependent on cyberspace to enable critical operations. The economic and structural consequence of an attack that disrupts national cyber infrastructure has the potential to seriously impact trust in such systems. As a result, any discussion of cybersecurity must include a discussion of trust. For example, a bank customer checking his account, a subordinate reporting to her superior via email, or a drone pilot, pilot operating a remote controlled surveillance vehicle are putting their trust in cyberspace. If these operations are to be effective, the people involved must trust what they are seeing, who they are talking with and how their commands are being carried out.
Uh, furthermore, loss of trust from poorly thought out cyber surveillance could also have impacts on issues relating to trust. So governments should aim to ensure that national security oversight mechanisms are functional and largely independent from political interference. Good governance requires that intelligence and national security services protect reputation for trustworthiness. Now in conclusion, the takeaway point I would like to make here today uh, is to su suggest the importance of developing cyber literacy. By cyber literacy, I refer to the capability of the key players in the cybersecurity space to develop a shared understanding and a shared discourse of cybersecurity issues. So as to facilitate the development and, and eventual entrenchment of cybersecurity norms. This process can support the emergence of normative behaviours which are especially important in a novel space like cybersecurity. Working towards shared understandings and common conceptions of acceptable and unacceptable, unacceptable behaviour can serve to minimise the risk of disproportionate responses and the misallocation of resources. The first step in this process necessarily, necessarily requires us to take positive steps towards a shared understanding of the political, social and economic dimensions of cybersecurity and insecurity, and to ensure that policymakers and analysts, uh, as well as the crucial technical operators, have a common understanding of the dynamics of the cybersecurity issue. Academic research and research-informed education and professional development play a central role in this. Programs such as the Strategy and Statecraft in Cyberspace program here at the NSC and the Cybersecurity for Analysts and Policymakers Professional Development course run by the Australian Graduate School of Policing and Security are important developments in continuing to build and enhance the cyber literacy of government and expanding the baseload of cyber literate professionals in government and beyond. As the nation state is forced to incorporate cyber capabilities, it is imperative that we take a rigorous and critical approach and that we invest in the development of cyber literate professionals. Okay, thanks for your time. We're going to move to questions now. We've got uh, some roving mics. We've got till about 10.2, I think, with questions. And uh, I should also point out that we've got two of the other authors in the audience, Levi and Adam Too, who, who can also be, we can also pitch questions to uh, if they're particular questions on, on their components of the, of, of the papers. So who'd like to open the batting? We've got one down there. My name's David, I'm college alumni. Having not had much dealing with philosophers before, I'm, I'm just wondering if we took the cyber prefix off everything, cyber warfare, cyber security, cyber weapons, if we took the prefix off that and just called it warfare, weapons and security, does that actually present a significant philosophical change to the way we should think about it? Or is it just the same stuff wrapped up in different clothing? Um, I'll start with an answer to that. Um, some of the things are simply old problems just wrapped up in new technology and I think one of the dangers of adding cyber is you get carried away with the technology and overlook that we've encountered many of these things in the past. But as one of the things I think came up a bit in uh, some of mixed discussion, um, what cyber is doing is spanning geographic spaces spanning temporal spaces so it can happen instantaneously or can happen with a very delayed reaction and can also span a whole range of different institutions and technologies. So at least to my understanding there's basically an emergent problem where, and this is the novelty of cyberspace, you're getting 
a new set of actors or a new range of actors interacting in ways that are novel with new technologies in new ways and then that produces the, the novelty. A lot of it is still pretty similar and we can learn a lot from say uh, the history of nuclear weapons and disarmament, from naval warfare, even from, even from um, space law, things like this. There are lots of analogies that we can draw but there is still a certain novelty in the cyber coming from, as I understand it, this kind of emergent phenomena. Right, thank you. Uh, killer question can first I, off. Can I You're going to make a comment? Yeah. Can I just add to that? The, um, the Arab Spring uh, is probably the, the most recent phenomenal case that's actually transferred, transferred where the power shift is coming from. Uh, if you take the cyber away, you're not actually representing where the knowledge and the power is today. Um, when I talk to people in crisis decision-making roles in, in emergency services and other places, one of the things that crisis decision-making has been able to rely upon in the past is that those in, with the authority and the power to make the decisions have possessed the knowledge and, and almost to the exclusion of anybody else. It's been a monopoly operation. That doesn't exist anymore. Communities are empowered to actually make their own decisions and in fact gather and garner support from each other to even challenge the decisions that have been made by those in authority. So there is a, there is a, big, there is a big change uh, by, by having the word cyber there. Sorry, Roger. That's Shannon, comment from you? I'll, I'll comment as well. Um, <clears throat> That, that was one of the, the dis uh, points of discussion that we had in Geneva with the ICRC. So there's a number of um, uh, international lawyers who uh, uh, believe they can use the, the Talon Manual, uh, which is a, a basically applying international law to the cyber realm or cyber conflict in particular, and they can say, well, it's basically just the same thing, like you said, with cyber tacked on the front. And, and as useful as that document is, and it's, it's, it's tremendously useful, um, there are just clearly things that are, that are unlike other things that have gone before. And, and I say that as a person who's a changing character of warfare sceptic. You know, I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't think conflict is, is fundamentally changing into something completely different. Um, but but I, I do think that there are obviously different things and we're not quite sure, I mean, some of those things we're aware of and, and a lot we're not as to how it's going to manifest. Thank you. Now we have another question over here. Um, hi, I'm Rachel Falk. I'm a current master's student and also have quite a bit to do with cyber in my day job. But um, metadata is obviously a hot topic and Mick Kilty, your former organisation, argued for more than two years worth of metadata at the PJCOS inquiry two years ago. So I know that you appreciate it in your former life. Um, I, I just think there's an interesting uh, ethical, I'd be interested in your ethical views here. Metadata is obviously used quite rightly through shopping centres and in a range of large organisations and uh, the White House recent paper on big data described it as digital exhaust. But fast forward to a few years and we get a cyber 9-11. Metadata will be in, uh, integral into piecing together perhaps what could have been stopped and what could have not been stopped. Um, what's your sort of ethical views? How much of the public foregone their privacy? But the, 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 you, have you thought about the fact that the, the use of metadata by agencies, both law enforcement and intelligence, really can't be discussed openly because they can't often publicise the work they do? And how do you sort of balance out that sort of public debate? <laughs> Sorry, curly question. <laughs> Okay, I'll take, I'll, I'll take a punt at that one. 
look, I, I think, I mean, first of all, uh, a simple thing is you can employ an ethicist to actually look at what you're doing in, in terms of these internal <laughs> organisations. Right? That's not just a plug for ethicists, although it mostly is. Um, um, so I think if, if you give, if give people who are expertise in this area some insight to what's actually happening, and, and we do have a, we have a working relationship with the, the ACC and the AFP and these other organisations, um, that, yeah, you can, you can get some sort of insight into it. Um, the other thing is that, you know, there's been talk about uh, using automated systems to pick up on certain types of metadata, which then, you know, uh, tags it as suspicious, which then gets looked by a, a human uh, when it's when it's seen as being suspicious, you know, and I think I think morally speaking, uh, that's a, that's a, a pretty well. What I see is a pretty reasonable principle. You know, if 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 there's something that is um, suspicious, and you can you can talk about how you go about developing what's suspicious, then I think um, then then you bring a human into the loop um, once once it's kind of been flagged as something that's suspicious. I'm certainly of the opinion that just hoovering up uh, data. Um, because you can is not a good idea. I think that's just bad intelligence practice anyway. Um, because it's like it's like the kid who basically gets takes out all the books out of the library and just hoards them and never actually looks at them. You know, it's, it's just on the hope that maybe you'll look at them later on. I just don't think that's good good practice anyway. Um, but besides that, I, I think that there are there are ethical ways of going about it. I'd also like to add that at least. To two comments that the first one was um, Shannon discussed issues of trust in the institutions and you pointed out quite rightly that a lot of the kind of national security work that's done has to be kept secret confidential or out of public view in this sense what we need to do is have mechanisms to ensure that we can trust those institutions um, you can see like a fairly problematic one has been the I guess the FISA courts in the US and how they've been kind of overseeing the NSA's work those seem to be from at least some uh, commentaries somewhat compromised with their independence. And I think Shannon was talking about the need to maintain these oversight mechanisms as independent. So that's at least one way of kind of ensuring or aiming at some institutional oversight so that we can actually have trust in the institutions whilst allowing them to, to keep their work you know, confidential as necessary. The second thing is you mentioned the Cyber 9-11. Um, I started looking at this cyber security stuff. There was all this talk about cyber catastrophe, cyber Pearl Harbor, and these things. And I guess I've been not wholly convinced, but a lot of it is um, either fantasy or kind of abject fear. Ah, this might happen, this might happen. And I think one of the concerns is something bad happens and we immediately assume it is of catastrophic proportions. Therefore, we can override any privacy or these sorts of things. Um, I'd say a lot of the things that do happen aren't rising to that level or aren't going to rise to that level of catastrophe. Um, so to me, a lot of the claims or need for privacy violations for instance, in those situations wouldn't actually be justified. Although I challenge that slightly because I think prior to 9-11, there was a view that planes wouldn't fly into big buildings. So I do think that that probably, you know, I think that's a, an element that might, you know, might be expanded further. Yep. I think we may just have, have to have questions and no replies. <laughs> We've had three questions so far, and we've, we've actually introduced three different major seminar topics. <laughs> the issue of cyber comes as a result of us seeking cheaper access to things. We built the access through globalization, and now it's coming back to bite us. We built inter interconnected and interdependent systems and created massive new technologies, etc., which link individuals of a whole variety of persuasions and inclinations together. Um, who now are using that capability. 
they also, most importantly, have access to knowledge. Knowledge which is highly sensitive and goes to the heart of the question of could we have a 9-11. I happen to believe that uh, we, we will have some form of 9-11 and it will probably center around some kind of infrastructure. Um, whether Visa is an infrastructure or something like that is a question for individuals who are picked up in it. But more fundamentally, the question of how we actually have a notion of risk. We have security risk professionals who focus on vulnerability and I think is absolutely the correct starting point because off of that you can get consequence. But we are now, by the federal government's mandate, as of uh, I think coming into force 1 July this year, imposing ISO 31000 on everybody and that has a threat orientation, threat hazard, it is single enterprise, there is no, no connectivity, no connection, no reach to address any of these issues and it does not lay any groundwork for forming collaborations across... The question, yeah. So the question then is how does, the, how does the security intelligence group who hold very sensitive knowledge work with businesses and governments effectively when we actually have to share some of the most sensible, sensitive vulnerability information on all parties' part. One thing that I would say is, so a lot of the stuff that I'm concerned with are value trade-offs, and often we see cyber as issues of, say, national security versus privacy or um, national security versus trust. One of the things that often seems to be overlooked is, um, let's say, security versus efficiency. And one of the things that cyber has done is increase efficiency, but then that's been at the cost of security. So I was reading some stuff a few days ago talking about making our um, energy, critical energy infrastructure more secure, but that's going to be at the cost of efficiency. So we might have to either pay higher prices or have less efficient production of energy at the cost of protecting our security. So that's, I think, one aspect of value trade-offs that we need to pay attention to is we might actually have to sacrifice some of our own efficiency and I know I get terribly frustrated when I have to change my password every month or something like that, or I have you know, 50 different passwords across a range of different places. But that's part of the cost of security and keeping our things secure, which goes in part to some of Shannon's discussion on cyber literacy. I don't see the public tolerating the decreases in the efficiencies that they've now become accustomed to. Um, so there are instances of genuinely recognised psychological problems that are as a result of not accessing, being able to access your Facebook or losing your phone. Now, mock that as we may, it's a function of someone who has spent the entirety of their life with their identity and their existence in a handheld device. Um, if you try to put air marshals on Qantas flights and make everyone take their shoes off at the airport before 9-11, I don't think you would have had much stop from the public. And I think this problem of efficiency versus security has become so embedded and so ingrained so quickly and become such an expectation that the idea that you've got to suddenly start paying more for it or sacrificing some of those efficiencies in the name of greater security um, is, is, I think, politically exceptionally difficult. So I, I, don't, uh, I can't see that sort of efficiency dividend being messed with too much anytime in the near future. Thank you. Um, my name's Anna Stabar. Um, I did a Master of Strategy and Security over at um, UNSW at ATFA, and I wrote my thesis on um, cyber sovereignty. Um, so my question is around um, 
would you say that the degree of involvement of governments in the cyber terrain uh, means that states are looking to, to basically put their borders up in cyberspace? Um, and if so, does that actually encourage or imply a growth in security issues in cyberspace? Um, I'm, I'm glad you've done the, uh, the masters in that topic. I'll have to chat to you later on. It sounds sounds really good. Um, I, I think uh, overall, if, you, if you're going to talk about sovereignty, obviously one of the issues there are certain countries who are trying to build um, their own kind of internets, essentially. And, and of course, the problem with that, the simple problem with that, is that you're losing the utility. I mean, the point is that you connect up everything, and then suddenly you, you're going to say, well, we're, going to, we're actually going to we're going to cordon off everyone else and have our own sub sub-internet, then you're kind of defeating the purpose of, of doing it. So it's not really, uh, from my perspective, it's not, it's, it's not really a solution at all. Yep. I think one of the things that uh, has to be kept in mind with, with cyber and the idea of setting up sort of individual nation-state internets is that it is eminently hackable at all times. So you saw in the Arab Spring when the Egyptian government shut down Twitter or Facebook as most sort of dictatorial governments are wont to do when there's some internal dissent. It doesn't take long for a transnational activist network to provide a workaround and a patch around so as that information can still get out. So this idea that, um, that you know, nation state internets is suddenly some sort of solution, uh, I think that sovereignty is so porous as a function of cyber already that uh, I think it sort of just extends out from that. So, so uh, with conventional surveillance, we have laws which stipulate that any law enforcement body must present a case to a judge who will give them a warrant uh, to conduct surveillance. And I was wondering if you could compare and contrast uh, the situation with metadata to that. Well, first off, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know much about law. Um, just as a bit of a caveat, legal caveat as such. Um, I think like the, the comment that I'd make on that is one of the problems, as I, I kind of very, very briefly discussed with metadata is people saw it as morally innocuous or kind of informationally inert or you know, whatever fancy term you might want to use. Um, but that's basically resting on a, a false premise in terms of the reason why people are so keen on metadata, the reason why Facebook and Google are these huge, huge, huge companies is when you aggregate it and analyse it, you produce new information, and then that information itself becomes quite important, both morally and, I guess, uh, for guiding action and behaviour and these things. Um, to my mind, once you start aggregating that information and producing something a lot more revealing, then I think more oversight and controls need to be um, brought in. Whether a warrant system or something like that is the best way of doing that, I'm not quite sure. But I think you know, treating metadata as wholly innocuous is problematic. But obviously, you know, getting back to these efficiency sorts of question, questions, treating any access to metadata like needing a, a warrant for that seems absurd. So we need to find some, I guess, graduated way of ensuring, A, that we can, you know, maximise our own quality of life, whilst B, protecting our privacy and ensuring that those accessing the metadata are accessing it for good reasons and only for those reasons. Um, and again, whether warrants are the way to do it, I think it depends on the, the particular groups accessing it and what they're accessing it for. A warrant system might work. Um, and this, this word privacy is notorious in sort of this literature because everybody's got their own definition of it, um, which is why in the white paper I tried to stick to sort of a value neutral version that just described what this thing is. But 
something else that's come out in the literature, so there was an article, I've forgotten the authors, but it was published in The Atlantic a couple of years ago, that said, well, maybe I don't have a right to privacy in social media. Because one of the arguments is, well, if I go out in the street and a police officer sees me and I'm wanted for something, then that officer can arrest me, right? I have no claim of privacy because I'm out in public. And people have made similar parallels with Facebook. What these authors say is that, okay, maybe you don't have a right to privacy, but you do have a right to anonymity. So in the same way that an officer can't come up to me and proceed to do sort of an intrusive search, well, now that New York City's changed its laws, um, <laughs> in this way, this should apply in cases of cyber as well, which is why I talk in, the, in this piece about there's, there are risky groups, there are threats, and then there are sort of innocent parties that there's no reason to scoop up their meta metadata. Maybe we have some reason to scoop up, I don't know, if my cousin's in the banditos or something like this, right? Maybe they need to check how many times I call my cousin a month and what happens afterwards. But once they've determined that nothing's going on there, that I'm just calling to ask about A&M, it seems very similar to something like phone surveillance, where they, they have to end the surveillance at that point. At least that's my position on it. Tim Scully, I'm the chair of the board of the Data to Decisions Cooperative Research Centre and also for my sins a PhD student here at ANU looking at cyber security in uh, Australian industry. Um, an interesting term I just heard there, a right to anonymity. I just want to ask about um, the onus on the individual for their own security. Um, Nick, you talked about Wi-Fi tapping into your Mobile phone, working around shopping centres, uh, we plug into Facebook, we plug into Twitter, we register for magazine subscriptions, we place our personal details out there in all forms, nearly every day. And I know as a student, I do it very frequently. Um, but our old notions of privacy, which tend to stem back from the days of hard copy, someone dealing with our bank statements and what have you, uh, still carry over into this modern cyber time. Do you see um, a time in the future uh, when individuals will have to take more responsibility for their own security. For example, when you log into Facebook and put in your details, yet you ignore the email from Microsoft or Apple that says to update your operating system or applications to make them more secure. Tim, I, I think that goes partly also to the previous question, and this is about the trade-off. Uh, for years and years and years now, ever, ever since we've had Hotmail, Yahoo, people have just been ticking the box. And they really haven't understood what they were ticking. And, and it's a little bit like destroying your own record or getting, getting rid of old records that you no longer want. A little bit like on Facebook, trying to destroy old relationships that you no longer have. Um, we, 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 at, from a policy perspective, it's, it's gone way out in front of our ability to try and control it. I think the, the threshold question is, uh, are the trade-offs that we're making consciously being made? And if they are consciously being made, what, what is our right to either withdraw or restrict it as an individual? Because all that we're talking about here in the main uh, is data belonging to, whether it be metadata or what it might be, but it's data belonging to individuals. And if you go back to the old um, privacy <coughs> principles, we were talking about you know, people's names, dates of birth. Um, now that stuff sits in Facebook, 
if it's not in front of you, it's very easily to derive it from, you know, 21st photos or birth photos or birthday parties. So I think, and it could also be, Tim, a generational thing. Um, someone nearly said it before. We've got to look at the advances that have been made through all of this. The ability for knowledge, particularly medical knowledge, to be delivered to remote areas and for people to be able to be guided through what to do uh, in a way that we've never been able to do before. So that I, I think the question is the balance in trade-offs. What are we giving up and what are we receiving and, and is it, are, we, are we happy to sit with it? Sorry, we do have one last question. It's like an auction. Hi there. Um, I'm still formulating. I know what I want to ask, but I just want to get the words out. What do you think of the responsibility of big corporations? So what I'm thinking is um, the elderly people who aren't technically savvy, they're not part of that generation, but it's becoming harder for people to not engage with the cyber technological revolution. Um, they're, they're likely to fall through the cracks. I mean, if they don't know how to use online apps properly, um, how do we protect them and what's the responsibility of these corporations that own that technology and are pushing it out? Well, I'd first like to say I consider myself part of that older generation <laughs> in that I don't really know much of what these computer things do. But um, I think one of the interesting things that's come out of the Snowden stuff is, first of all, you know, there's obviously been really you know, a lot of focus on government practice, but I think alongside that has been a lot of questions now being asked about Google, Facebook and what they're doing. Um, obviously, Facebook's had long kind of checkered history of its privacy settings and these sorts of things. Um, what is interesting is the way in which they are kind of, I guess, using their marketing arms to say, oh, look, you know, it's not us, it's the government. But I think there is an awareness now that these companies do have a responsibility and they need to be taking these, you know, the metadata and other things more seriously. And, you know, in follow-up to some of the early questions, I think this is where the cyber literacy stuff comes in, that whether it's the companies in conjunction with the government, in conjunction with universities or other things, we need to be educating people in some way or another about this and it's going to be different education given different generations, but I think that that is a really, really important thing so that not only do the companies take on some responsibility, but the people actually have the capacity to understand what they're doing, how they're doing it and why they're doing it. Um, doesn't properly answer the question, but I think they do have a responsibility. How that plays out is, yeah, quite complex obviously. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. And I, I said that philosophers were the bottom turtle in the stack, and we've just uh, seen their ability to range across very, very wide areas. And thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank everyone for coming tonight and help us help us launch our paper out into cyberspace. That's where it's going. Uh, you'll be able to find it on the net. Uh, and I'd like you, uh, and, I, and I hope we see you at our next public seminar face to face, not on the net. And I'd like you to join me in thanking our speakers tonight. It's been a very successful night. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.